Good afternoon. I'm Brenda Talent, the CEO of the Show Me Institute. Thank you for being a part of this telephone town hall on economic recovery after a pandemic. Let me get some housekeeping out of the way uh, because we're going to be taking questions during this town hall. To ask a question, press star at any time during the call. That's going to transfer you to one of our team members who will get you in the queue. If there are any members of the press on the line, please identify which outlet you're with when you ask your question. Zach Lawhorn from Show Me Opportunity will identify when we have a question from the public. We'll try to get to as many questions as we can today, but if we don't have a chance to answer yours, you can submit questions via email at info at showmeinstitute.org, on Facebook at Facebook slash Show Me Institute, or on Twitter to our profile at Show Me. Again, if you want to ask a question, press star at any time. For our meeting today, Senator Jim Talent will be interviewing Andy Poster. Senator Talent is known in Missouri for his many years of service in the U.S. House and Senate. Andy is a former CEO of CKE Restaurants. He also was President Trump's first nominee for Secretary of Labor. He currently is a senior fellow at the Pepperdine University School of Public Policy and the author of The Capitalist Comeback. The Trump Boom, and The Left Plot to Stop It. And he's also a frequent guest on cable news and a contributor to the Wall Street Journal. Senator Talent, I now turn the program over to you. Well, thank you, Brenda. I guess this is um, part two, because last week we talked about the pandemic itself and uh, the health implications of it with Randy Larson, who is an old friend and now uh, of mine, and now we're on with Another old friend of mine, Andy Pusner. Andy, welcome, and thank you for being with us today. Uh, thanks, Jim. My pleasure. So, uh, Andy, um, if any of you have ever had a hamburger at, uh, at Hardee's or any one of their other fine products, and, and of course it's Hardee's here in the Midwest, then, and you enjoyed it, um, Andy is a big part of the reason for that, and he's a person that I go to and and talk to about what's really happening with the economy and, and how business is really reacting to government policies uh, on the ground. And he's communicated with political officials an awful lot over the years on exactly that issue and helped inform their judgment. So Andy, um, what should, what, what do you think the average American ought to know about the state of the U S economy now or the global economy? Because if you, if, okay. if you were talking, right, we're talking to Americans now, but if you were talking to a political official, what, what would be your opinion of where we're at now? I, I think the one of the most important things to know about the economy today is, thank God we went into this with a very robust economy. Um, we, it's not, we're not invulnerable. It's not, uh, you know, it's not uh, bulletproof. But we went in with a very strong economy. And just to, to give you an idea, this morning, the jobs numbers came out, and of course they were very discouraging, 700,000 fewer jobs, uh, unemployment rate up. But you got to keep in mind the unemployment rate's 4.4. Economists think 5% is full employment, so we're still at a low unemployment rate. But even more interestingly, uh, the number of jobs we have today after the end of March is 151,786,000, so about 152 million. That's more jobs than we had in October of last year. So just a few months ago, I mean, we've lost jobs, but we, we, we were doing so well that we're not, we, we're, you know, we're not back to 19 uh, or to 2008, 2009 levels. We're really just back to a little bit uh, last year. 
Now, we can weather this shutdown uh, if it doesn't last too long. Our economy is that strong. Other parts of the world where the economy is not as strong, such as Spain and Italy, they, they were not as strong going into this. They're going to have a rough time and uh, may need our assistance coming out of this. We may need to help them much as we helped Europe recover after World War II with the Marshall Plan. Uh, but our strength is the vitality of our free market capitalist system and the dynamic and broad-based prosperity we had going into this. Uh, so I think at the moment, if, this, if, we don't, if the shutdown doesn't go too long, I think we're in pretty good shape. That is good to hear. Um, you know, this is the first time we've had global pandemics before. Uh, it's the first time we've ever had a global pandemic in a pretty completely globalized economy. In that sense, I mean, the, the economy's a, a, a lot more global than it was when I started in the, in the Congress in the early 90s. Um, so what do you think the strengths and weaknesses are of a globalized economy in the face of this? And what, in what ways would you expect an, an interconnected world economy like ours to react better in the face of a pandemic? And, and, and what challenges will it present to business that, that wouldn't have been there 25 years ago? Well, I think you start with the notion that, that this, uh, the fact that we had a global economy it was in part responsible for the rapid spread of this virus. And, you know, that's an unfortunate uh, side effect to a global economy, but I think it's hard to deny that, uh, that that's a big part of what spread it around the world so quickly was people traveling as much as they do because of the economy. However, I think going forward, uh, our connection with other nations, uh, the interdependence of some of our industries and our, uh, our, our dependence on other countries for certain natural resources and products should help us revive those countries down the road. The United States is going to come back uh, strongly out of this, I think, and, uh, and I think we'll be able to assist countries uh, that, um, uh, as I said, that, that didn't go into this as, as strongly as we did. Uh, now, luckily, we, you know, we had a president who was already focusing the United States on improving its domestic economy rather than focusing as much on improving the economies in other countries. And I think that that gave us a leg up when we went into this. Uh, how much that's going to matter when we go forward, we'll have to wait and see. You know, the reality is that nobody's ever dealt with a pandemic, uh, as you said, in an industrialized world, uh, an interconnected world. So we're going to have to wait and see what happens. I think the closest would be what happened after World War II with respect to the United States and Japan and the United States and Europe, uh, both of which uh, were devastated. Japan and Europe were devastated by World War II. They were industrial economies, and we just had to work together to bring, to bring them back, and, uh, and we successfully did that over a long period of time. Yeah, Senator I think Talon, I just want to r remind our listeners that if they have a question, to press star in order to get in the queue. I think uh, – Business students and economists are going to be studying this for years and years to come. It's going to shed a lot of knowledge, I think, uh, in terms of how people react. So, Andy, did you did you like the recovery package that the Congress passed? Did you think it was basically right? I, I've told people that I would have voted for it. I'll go out on a limb and say that um, I'm certain we'll discover things about it that we don't like, and and we are but that I felt it was necessary because it's like the economy's hit pause right now and, and we want to hedge against it, you know, it, it absolutely beginning to fall. So, but what did you think 
And I'll just I'll add something to that. In administering the the loans and the other aid packages for business, what do you think it's important for the executive branch agencies to do and to not do in order to make this something that business can really take advantage of? Yeah, first of all, I think this was a very important package. It was necessary for the government to do this. This is this wasn't like the savings and loan crisis or the Great Depression, or the tech crisis, uh, the tech bubble, or the real estate bubble. Uh, this, th- this didn't involve businessmen and women, investors, or financial institutions taking excessive risk. It involved the government shutting down the economy. And when the government, and, and properly so, because of the, the, the emergency that we're facing with this pandemic. But the government shut it down. The government needed to step up and try and help us to get through this period of time when it shut down. So this will certainly, the package will certainly blunt the negative impact uh, substantially, particularly for small businesses that are eligible for $350 billion in forgivable loans. It also helps individuals who are going to get checks and these very generous unemployment benefits. Uh, the small business loans require that employers retain their employees to get loan forgiveness. So, again, that will help employees. That will help workers. For larger businesses, the Federal Reserve is getting about $500 billion that it can lever up for like $4 trillion worth of loans. So it's a massive and unprecedented government program that should minimize the damage uh, as we get through the shutdown, and that's exactly what the government needed to do. What the government shouldn't do is use its authority under these bills or its leverage under these bills to um, take control of companies or to take control of the larger sections, larger sections of the economy. When this is over, the economy can only spring back uh, if we let uh, the free enterprise system, capitalism, work its magic. As as Milton Friedman said back in the early 1960s, he was the first economist to notice that recessions, the economy is kind of like a bowstring. Like in a recession, you pull the bowstring back. And the further back you pull it, the deeper the recession goes, the faster and stronger the recovery. So this is pretty deep, and we should have a fast and strong recovery if the government doesn't overdo it, doesn't do what it tried to do after the Obama administration and get involved in different sectors sectors of the economy and try and regulate it or, or control them. Uh, we need the free enterprise system to work, and I think it can. Uh, I think if we keep this, the, if we keep President Trump, it will. Uh, but I think it should, and uh, we'll see what happens. Yeah, I've got to interject. We're 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 a public, uh, we're we're a think tank, so we don't get involved in endorsing individuals or parties. Just want to put that out there. But again, press star if you've got a question. And Jim, I wanted to let you know we do have some questions in the queue, so I'll turn it back over to you. Well, okay. Um, I guess we could go. I guess we could go right to questions. But what I hear you saying, Andy, and then we will go to questions. And what it's worth, I agree. Uh, you're optimistic that if we get this pandemic under control, so that a we don't have to continue these very severe restrictions, and b the pandemic is not itself suppressing the economy that you would expect the economy to come back pretty strong unless the government decides to try to keep fixing it. Is that is that a good way of putting it? That is a good way of putting it, and I'll, I'll just uh, help Rand out here. I'll say any free market capitalist uh, president that we elect could do this. Just it's, It has to be somebody who's supportive of the free markets regardless of, of party. Right, exactly, because the, uh, the answer is, uh, is the market working? Uh, and, and the government has been helping, but it can become an obstacle, and I agree with that. So let's go to some questions, Brenda. All right, our first question is 
from David in St. Louis. So, David in St. Louis, go ahead. Okay, thanks a lot. Um, Being, of course, a strong free market advocate, one can't help but wonder, uh, given the huge increase in the budget deficit, maybe three or four times, uh, it might have on uh, inflation going forward. That's that's number one. Granted, it hasn't happened yet, but as it gets so huge, it would it happen? And secondly, I worry that if the net worth from operating losses of people and businesses is down, if that may give people less spending power and therefore make a turnaround much more difficult. I'm hoping neither of those will happen, but I wanted your take on it. Yeah. I'd say, first of all, with inflation, uh, what you know, the, the thing that causes inflation is when uh, demand exceeds supply. Like if there's too much demand and not enough supply of a good, a particular good, that the price of that good will go up. So when demand generally exceeds supply, you end up with inflation. Now, right now we don't have a problem with demand exceeding supply. Supply seems to be fine and people don't actually seem to be spending much money. Um, I think mostly because they're staying home, not going out, not doing the kind of things they normally do. Once um, once this is over, uh, if demand increases dynamically, number one, it would be a good sign because it would mean people were, again, earning money and unable uh, to spend and engaging in the economy. But we could well end up certainly with more inflation than we've seen uh, you know, over the past uh, eight to ten years when inflation has been really under control. So we're going to have to see the money supply has been significantly increased. Uh, that will impact uh, the uh, the supply and demand curve. But for the it, it, right now, I don't see that being a problem, and I certainly don't see it being a problem in the initial stages of any economic recovery. As far as net worths being down, um, you know, that's a problem, and and it people aren't going to have as much to spend from their jobs, from those companies, from those businesses whose net worth is decreased. However, hopefully people are still going to have money. One, they're going to get money under the uh, the, uh, the uh, CARES Act. They'll be getting checks. You know, if, if it's a husband and a, and, a, and a wife and two kids, they'll be getting $3,400. Uh, there, there is a movement in Congress to try and expand that amount in the next round of stimulus. I don't know if we'll need that, but if we do, there's a movement there. And people will continue to get paid uh, if they work for small businesses because those small businesses have to keep their employees on the payroll uh, to um, uh, to get the, their loans forgiven. So you've got, uh, and then they've got unemployment benefits, which have been very generously increased uh, by about six hundred dollars, by exactly six hundred dollars per week by the federal government. So there should be money out there to spend. We're not going to have the kind of robust spending we've had after, you know, we just had what nineteen months in a row where. Uh, where wage growth was above uh, 3%. And in fact, in March, the numbers that came out this morning, wage growth was above 3% again. So people should have um, money to spend, but I, I don't think we're going to have a problem that, that, that spending would be so um, uh, at such a magnitude and demand so and, uh, and supply so low that we would see inflation increase. Yeah, if I can add, Andy, Andy as to the first part of David's question about the deficit, and boy, I worry about the deficit too. I did all the years I was in office. Um, in the 90s, we were able to get to a balanced budget. But I would say let's focus on the right problem. You know, the, the problem isn't that we use the credit of the United States in an emergency like this. Okay, that's when you're supposed to use it, right? The problem is that uh, we're using the credit of the United States in the past 
when we didn't have any emergency and we were borrowing much too heavily. So what we need to do is to solve, after we get up past this pandemic, solve the, the, the built-in structural uh, deficit that occurs every year. And we won't get off in that because it's not exactly what we're talking about today. But you're right to be concerned, David, but I, I, I don't think the problem is what we're doing now. The problem is how we've been managing the budget in, in the normal times of the past. You know this, and Jim, this may be, uh, you know, I may I may be having false hope here, but I'm I'm hoping with the deficit increase we have through this crisis, that it will um, it will spur a discussion in Congress about the need to address our deficit. We you know we really need to get non-discretionary spending under control, uh, which means that we and, and discretionary as well, but non-discretionary has been the the problem because it continually rises. I hope we'll address that issue. Um, we'll see coming out of this. I mean, the, the deficit may have gotten to the point or the, the debt may have gotten to the point um, where even uh, people who were reluctant to discuss it in the past will be willing to discuss it this time. Well, I hope the pandemic teaches us, Andy, that uh, that when you run risks for long enough, uh, eventually the risk gets realized. And we have a risk of, uh, of financial disaster if we keep running this this structural deficit but I, that's probably not exactly on point so why don't we go to the next question brendan all right our next question is from mark and independence mark and independence go ahead uh, yes you all talked about this a bit uh but how other countries are handling this uh some good some not so good and then of course there's china who we are probably among other things just angry at right now uh how do you think this will affect our trade? And as far as China goes, I actually heard the spending stat that 95% of our drugs are made in China. I don't know if that's right or not, but I know they want to bring those companies over here. How much do you think that'll happen? How much do you think Chinese American companies in China will return here? And how do you think this will affect our trade? Because we really don't know what the situation is in other countries right now. Well, I'm hoping that once uh, once once we, we get back on track, that uh, trade with China will pick up again. I think that China needs our trade. Um, it, it's good that we have a trade relationship with them. I think it keeps it keeps uh, uh, tempers under control, and I think it's a positive for both countries. However, uh, I also think that we need to bring uh, a lot of our manufacturing back. We need to bring we need to be less reliant. I think this is a good demonstration here, particularly. With respect to pharmaceuticals, as uh, as you mentioned, that we need to have particularly uh, critical uh, defense-related products uh, manufactured here and not be dependent on whether it's China or India or South Africa. We need to be dependent more, uh, more self, more um, independent than we need to be dependent. And I think uh, we let things get a little out of control, and I think this crisis will help bring. Uh, will help bring that back into perspective. I, I think world trade will pick up again. I, I, you know, look, the other countries in the world need the United States. Uh, we get benefits from trading with them. I think that uh, that those benefits will reassert themselves once this crisis is over. Uh, and I, I hope uh, I hope our relationship with uh, with with China improves. This is certainly going to be a strain on it. Yeah, the caller is right about pharmaceuticals. Um, the Chinese do produce or source about 80% of the advanced uh, pharmaceutical ingredients are called APIs. And so most of our generic drugs are sourced one way or another out of China, which is a security risk. We do not want to be dependent on a competitor and potential adversary like China. 
for our medicine. Now, there was already a movement even before this pandemic uh, to uh, diversify and protect uh, our supply lines, if you will, in key industries. Uh, And I expect this pandemic to just catalyze that movement even more. But um, both ends of Pennsylvania Avenue have been doing that. Um, have been looking into that and pushing hard in that area for the last couple of years, and I think we're going to see more of it. You know, one one thing, just to follow up on Mark's question and your comments, Jim, is just just think how much trouble we'd be in right now if a country like Russia or uh, or Iran or Venezuela or Saudi Arabia uh, could hold us right now hostage to energy. And now we're not using as much energy as we previously did, but we still need energy, and we'll need it to get through the summer and the winter. Um, just it, it was important that we became an energy independent country, and I think uh, I think now it's important that we become independent with respect to security related uh, commodities such as pharmaceuticals. So, I, and Marco's a good question. Andy, as you know, I'm a reminder for those uh, a reminder for those who are joining the call. You can press star at any time on your keypad to ask a question. Our next question is from Stephen in St. Louis. Stephen in St. Louis, go ahead. It's you, Steve. Oh, what's your opinion on the uh, wisdom of the Federal Reserve dropping interest rates to zero percent again, where basically they're handing out free money and making life very difficult for finance companies to stay in business? Mm-hmm. Uh, my my personal opinion when they did it was I thought they did it too soon and too much. Uh, they really didn't have a lot of leverage. Uh, because interest rates weren't never really got very high again, although they were raised for the first I think eight quarters uh, after um, after President Trump was elected, they still hadn't gotten to levels that they probably needed to be to be an effective weapon against this. I think it was a 2008-2009 weapon in a 2020 crisis. Uh, I think they used it too quickly. I think they did too much, but. You know, it, it, it certainly emphasized to the financial markets that the Fed was concerned and that the Fed was going to do everything it possibly could to make sure that uh, we didn't go into a, a, uh, a depression, a very deep recession or a depression. So I think that's the positive end of it. Um, I'm, I'm reluctant to criticize people in hindsight uh, because you're, you know, they're, making, they're making critical decisions um, with limited information uh, in, a, in a new and challenging situation. But, uh, but I, I agree with you. I don't, I don't think zero interest rates are the way to go. It doesn't make it easier now for us to borrow money, though, to, uh, to cover all this debt. All right, our next question is from Thomas in Florida. Thomas, go ahead. Thomas in Florida, go ahead. I guess we can go oh, to the next question. Me. All right. Uh, let's try Bob in Columbia. Bob in Columbia, go ahead. Yes, thank you. Uh, one of my concerns is that uh, the recession, the, the economic difficulties that we're really getting into now goes on and on and on, and people get so desperate that they vote in a bunch of socialist socialists and socialist uh, type policies. Uh, is this a reasonable concern or do you feel like we're going to have a short time with a bad economy and it will be all right and we won't try the socialist temptation at all? Well, I do think we'll have a, uh, a short time 
and that we'll bounce back, assuming that we don't adopt, you know, big government collectivist socialist type policies as the means to recover once the once the crisis is over. So uh, I do think that what look these these socialists, the progressives, uh, they play the long game. Uh, they don't play the short game, even even when there's a setback as there was in the 80s or as, there, or, or as there has been over the past few years, even when there's a setback to their agenda. They don't give up. They don't go away. Uh, and we've seen them come back strongly in, um, in, in recent years. So it's always a threat. We should always be concerned about it. Uh, but as long as this doesn't go on, it doesn't drag on too long, uh, once we start to get the economy back on track, I think, uh, I think people will realize that uh, the system we have is a pretty damn good one. And over the years, Bob, I, I learned to have a, a pretty strong faith in the inherent good sense of the American people. And I'm not just saying that as an old politician. I, I think they get the big things right most of the time. Well, I'm going to go ahead and, and this is Brenda jumping back in for our our former our prior caller who uh, didn't get on the line. His question was basically along the lines of what what does the economy look like if this particular crisis continues for another year, and what are the expectations in that regard? Well, if, if you're talking about the um, the coronavirus crisis, in other words, people dying from this disease or this disease spreading, that probably is going to last a year unless we come up with a uh, some therapeutics or a um, or a vaccine very quickly. But that doesn't mean that it has to have this continuing devastating impact on the economy. Right now, we're on the the left side of that coronavirus curve, the one that shows deaths increasing so dramatically, uh, we're trying to hold that down so that our hospitals don't get uh, overwhelmed uh, with patients coming in, which would increase the death rate. I think we're going to be doing that for the next few weeks. But I don't. I, the, these these strictures on the economy now can't last a year. I think uh, uh, Rush Limbaugh came out yesterday and said, you know, this is unsustainable. Uh, and people are focusing on the wrong thing. This isn't a a life versus money crisis. You know, crisis. Uh, this is a life versus life economic crisis. So that we have, we've got to keep in mind that if we keep the economy uh, where we are right now, shut down for a very long period of time, that in itself is life threatening. And we're going to have to step back and let the economy get back in gear. Hopefully, getting back in gear quickly. And again, I think a lot of that will depend upon how. Um, successful we are in coming up with ways to address this virus in the short term. And I would, again, to sound an encouraging note, the public health authorities are well aware of the danger of economic damage. I mean, I've never been in a room with them talking about pandemics, and I worked with this issue for a dozen years where it was not front and center on their minds. They know it has a huge human health impact if the economy goes off for a long time. So everybody wants to to take the lid off the economy, if you will, and the plan, basically, in, in a broad sense, is to get us to a point where we have contained the disease and can control it uh, using less restrictive but the very common countermeasures for, for epidemics, which is all the personal hygienic um, um, rules that they've been encouraging us to use. It's vigorous testing and then um, – isolation of uh, sick individuals, uh, basically them staying at home and their households. Uh, and so they, they are, I think, optimistic that we will get there. 
We just don't know exactly when. And I, I kind of think it's going to be the short term. I'm still pretty optimistic about that. And then Andy's right. If, if, if one of these therapeutics comes through uh, and, and significantly reduces the severity of the disease, that's a game changer as soon as we can get that out to people. But our next question is from Steve in St. Louis. Steve in St. Louis, go ahead. Good afternoon. Uh, talking to a bunch of people who already endorse free markets, and I, Mr. Puzzler's view that nothing should be done to nationalize companies, but I do feel that on some of the um, major, I'm not going to use the word bailout, but, but help, that it might be in the interest of the taxpayer to take some sort of equity or warrant position, non-voting, in some of these companies, not to run them, not to put people on the board, but to have some return after things uh, begin to flatten back out. Thank you. Yeah, you know, Steve. The um, in fact, the uh, the loans that the Fed is going to make, and this this is where the this is really where the tremendous money is. There's 350 billion for small businesses, but there's four trillion potential lending capacity now at the Fed. And the Fed, uh, under Section 13B uh, of the Federal Reserve Act, which was amended back in the, uh, the days of the last fiscal crisis, actually requires that they lend to companies that are capable of paying back and they get some kind of collateral. And, in fact, the Secretary of the Treasury has been authorized specifically by the Calm Act uh, to take whatever kind of collateral he can get, including an equity interest in the company. My, my, my concern isn't that... Uh, that the government get paid back, or that um, you know the companies, uh, the government get an equity interest until they're paid back. Uh, my concern is if the government tries to exercise influence uh, in the economy, so we no longer have a free market economy, but an economy that's um, that's run by you know, bureaucrats or government elites in uh, in Washington D.C., which is what I hope doesn't happen. But we should get paid back. We got paid back the TARP funds almost completely, which I thought was uh, real positive. Next, we have Forrest from St. Louis. Forrest from St. Louis, go ahead. Uh, I've got two questions. First question is, when the uh, consumer gets all their money, the $1,200, if the stores aren't open, how is it going to improve the economy? Forrest, well, you want to answer? Respect, yeah. I was going to answer the second question. Yeah. yeah. My second question is, I'm in the restaurant business. And we're shut down, no sales whatsoever. Uh, I have friends in other businesses like heating and cooling, uh, uh, marketing, advertising. Uh, their business isn't bad, and uh, they're going to be able to get the same benefit I will when my business is, is bad. Well, you, there definitely will be some businesses that do better than others during this uh, crisis. You know, Netflix and Amazon are, are big businesses that come to mind. As far as stores not being open, the, the purpose of these funds initially is so that people can pay their rent, uh, go to the grocery store and get groceries, pay their utilities so the heat and the air conditioning stay on if they need them. You know, there, there are, of course, millions and millions of Americans out there worried today about whether they're going to be able to feed their children or their families, where they're going to, where the next dollar is going to come from, uh, who who may be going to work uh, when they shouldn't go to work, and uh, and spreading a uh, spreading this virus uh, when we're all trying not to spread the virus. So I think in that sense, uh, the store is not being open. That's not going. It, it, that will inhibit the 
extent of the economic growth that that could come out of these survival funds, which the Congress has authorized. But these funds weren't intended to stimulate growth. They were intended to make to, to give people security, um, and you know, so we don't have really people panicking across the country about how they're going to uh, how they're going to survive. As far as the restaurant business, uh, you know, I'm, I'm uh, as, you, as Jim mentioned, I'm very familiar with the restaurant business. If you've got a sit-down restaurant where you don't have delivery or drive-through, you know, or the ability to do curb service, you are going to have. Uh, a severe problem. I, I guess the good news is uh, that assuming you have under 500 employees per location, and of course every restaurant has under 500 employees per location, you will be available for these loans, which should allow you to pay your rent, pay your utilities, uh, pay interest on any debt that you had prior to this crisis, uh, and to retain your employees and uh, to keep them on the payroll. With, with a loan that will be forgiven when this is over. So you may not make the profits you were going to make in the interim here, but uh, but you shouldn't have any uh, material losses, um, uh, it, you know, for the, I don't know, two, two and a half months that this uh, these loans um, are, 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 are contemplating, they will help support your business. So it's not going to be ideal. Some people will benefit more than you will benefit, but... Uh, I think given the amount of time Congress had to do this and the complexity of the problem, I think they did. They, I actually think they did a pretty good job. So wish I had better news for you, but uh, that's where it is. Forrest does raise an interesting point, Andy, and I wonder if, if you agree with the concern that I have here, which is uh, uncertainty is the enemy of business planning. And this money has been appropriated. It's got to be administered and loaned out. Uh, the SBA is going to be doing a fair amount of that through the normal lenders, which was smart. That's a good model that's out there. I mean, the SBA has experience, and so do the SBA lenders, as you know. But the government's got to move quickly, and it's got to move with clarity to decide who's eligible for this and who isn't. And, you know, Forrest makes a good point. I mean, yeah, we do we do want it to go to the businesses that have the biggest need. On the other hand, if the business is in a position where – you know, they, 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 they're not certain they're going to be able to keep everybody employed. You know, we don't want them to be laid off either. And, and, and that kind of business was, I think, contemplated as a recipient of this money. So I, I don't know if you agree. A lot is going to depend on, on how the agencies are able to do this quickly with clarity and faithful to the underlying purpose of the statute. Do you agree with that? I do. And I, uh, I've actually had this discussion with some people in Treasury and they are they are absolutely committed to move as fast as the government can move. Now, that's not going to be as fast as we would prefer, but that's also why they put a lot of the uh, the uh, elements of execution for the CARES Act and for the Sick Leave Act in the hands of private sector businesses like banks and with the um, with the sick leave right in the hands of the employers, because they know that the private sector can move faster than the public sector. But the public public sector is going to have to move fast on this. Um, uh, they're aware of that, and uh, they're, they're motivated to see that it happens because they don't want to see the kind of economic harm that could come if, they're, if they don't move quickly. Reminder to our listeners, press star at any time to get in the queue to ask a question. Our next question is from Julie in Valley Park. Go ahead, Julie in Valley Park. Yes. Okay, I have a few questions. All right, I live completely off the stock market, stocks and bonds, okay? And now am I just going to get a stimulus check? People like myself who are 
retired, you know, who completely rely on the market or people who are in SSDI or both are going to get the check because, you know, it hurts us when the market takes a hit, you know. So I know even though, say, last year we had a great run and we made, you know, over $70,000, but this year, you know, we're we're here getting hurt. We're getting hammered because uh, people are panicking and selling off right now like crazy and, and we're going through these um, uh, volatility up and down. You know what I'm saying? And it's like we also need part of the uh, important part of the economy because people like myself, I like to go out to restaurants every day. I like to sit down in the restaurants every day. And also on a note, you could open the restaurant, spread the table, and even if they're not getting as many people, at least you're still putting the people in a low risk and you're still letting people get out. And you know that. All right, thank you, Julie. We're going to take your first question. So, uh, Senator Talent uh, and Mr. Fuzzner, do you think that those that live off the market and Social Security uh, should be included in the stimulus package? Well, the, um, you, you will be included uh, depending upon uh, how much money you make uh, in income a year. And if you make under $75,000, it doesn't matter uh, where you get your money from. Uh, you're going to be getting a or 150000 if it's you and your husband. Uh, if you make under that, you're going to be getting these checks from the government uh, regardless of where that income comes from. So you, you, you should be in good. And, and you should be in good shape. And those, with respect to those checks, and that... Those, those amounts go up. It's actually there's actually a higher cap. I think it's almost two hundred thousand um, dollars for people to receive these funds, but you receive less as you get above one hundred seventy-five thousand or one hundred fifty thousand combined. Uh, and look, I'm I'm sympathetic to these um, uh, to sitting there and uh, you know watching your wealth melt away as the uh, as the stock market declines. That's something I have a great empathy for. Uh, but look, this this will come back. You know, if you're in the market, it goes up. It comes down. And if the economy begins to recover, if we get some good news on the coronavirus, um, COVID-19, such as a, a therapeutic or a vaccine that's effective and uh, the um, investors begin to see the potential for the economy to come back and for companies to do better, you'll see those stocks that went down go back up. Uh, the, the major concern, I think, for people with investments in the market would be if businesses stop um, start canceling their dividends because you're you're really living off the dividends in the market. You're not living off so, so much off the the uh, actual value of those assets. Uh, and uh, people start cutting dividends. I think we're going to see a lot more panic, uh, particularly with people that are retired, living off uh, their investments in Social Security. But for right now, only a few companies have done that. So um, I think uh, hopefully you've got a diversified portfolio with some bonds in it as well with, uh, that will continue to pay. And uh, and we'll get through this crisis, but for the but there's going to be some hardship in the short term, and I'm very sympathetic. Hey, Andy, would you address the second part of her question about restaurants maybe reopening with fewer tables or not having the bar open? In other words, do you think restaurateurs are out there now uh, planning how they can run their operations, uh, make some money, but also you know do it in a way that gives uh, less opportunity for the disease vectors. Uh, how feasible is that, you think? Well, and not only is it feasible, I think it's critical that restaurateurs do that. Uh, look, we've all become used during this crisis 
to using the internet to purchase things, you know, on Amazon or Uber Eats or Grubhub or DoorDash and having food delivered to the house, uh, you know, it used to be just pizza. Maybe if you were lucky, there'd be a Chinese place nearby that delivered. Now every, everybody delivers, everything delivers. So we've really got to start as restaurateurs. We're not going to, I don't think when this crisis is over, we're going to need dining rooms the size that we used to have, because I think more people are going to be taking advantage of these delivery services. So if you aren't thinking about, uh, you know, increasing third-party delivery, if you aren't thinking about uh, maybe having curb service, if you're able to have it or drive through service, uh, if you're just focused on your dining room, I think you're going to find that your business uh, your business will decline. It doesn't need to. Uh, there are these other delivery services that can keep it in shape. But I think when this is over, we're going to see a lot of people purchasing things, and not just restaurants, uh, not just food in restaurants, but many, many different commodities differently than we used to in the past. My, my mother is 97 years old. Uh, if you mentioned Amazon to her, you know, six, eight weeks ago, she would have thought you were talking about a river in Brazil. You know, now she's the queen of Amazon. She's out there ordering everything she, everything she wants uh, on Amazon.com. So uh, we're going to see uh, habits change and restaurants need to adjust. And I think it's a very, it's not only a good idea for health purposes to have fewer tables where people sit further apart, uh, but I think it's also a good, makes good economic sense to try and diversify the way your restaurant can get food to consumers. And Andy and I have both uh, talked about our concerns regarding these restrictions on the economy. But at the same time, we have to remember that uh, as long as the disease is out there, whether the government says you can go to the restaurant or not, it's going to have an impact on the flow of customers. Uh, until people feel comfortable again going and eating out and sitting down. And so I know business people are adjusting, and, you know, that's just something that's going to be with us as long as the disease is with us, unless and until we get medicines that uh, render the disease much less harmful in that small fraction of cases that are or, or in that demographic that's high risk. All right, our next question is from Nicole in St. Charles. Nicole in St. Charles, go ahead. Hello, thank you uh, for being here with us today and, and sharing your expertise and insights. Um, I, you know, I think that um, I'm really curious, like, what you think about what the metrics and the goals are that we should be looking at, like what our public policy um, people and office should be looking at when it comes to going back to some level of normalcy? Like what are the public health metrics that, that would make people feel more comfortable? And I realize, you know, there's some talk about the vaccine, but that's at least a year out, right? Like that's, that would be the soonest that we would have something. So what, what should our politicians and elected officials be looking at for metrics that say, you know what, we have things under enough control now, we can actually go back to normal and we could remove the lift from the economy. Thank you. Well, Jim's going to know more about this than I do, but I think we we need to, we need to see that curve. Thank you, Nicole. Too, we need to see that uh, that uh, coronavirus curve start to come down. That bell curve. I think when we start to see that, I think people will be reacting more positively and begin to feel that we've got this at least a little more under control. I think here in the United States, uh, we're reporting the number of people with the virus and the number of deaths. Uh, very accurately. So once we see that bell curve start to decline, we 
should have more confidence uh, at a public policy level. I, I believe that's what the president and the council are waiting to see, that this is kind of leveling out and our hospital, our medical facilities won't be overwhelmed. But as I said, Jim, you're, you're more on top of this than I am. No, I think that's correct. They're going to move to what Tony Fauci called a containment strategy. Once they feel that the number of severe cases has stopped spiking and has leveled off, at that point, they're not going to be as concerned about the surge capability in the hospitals and in the ICU, and they can move to a less restrictive regimen. And at the same time, they're bringing testing capacity way up. I think we're testing over 100,000 now a day, and that's going to go up and up, and the tests are going to get faster and faster. And, and, and when you can do the diagnostics like that, then you can focus on the people whom the tests show are infected. The other thing that will help a lot, uh, Nicole, and they're, they're working on this and going to get it out there, is the serology tests, which tell you whether you have had the disease. And so when they can get that out there and they'll sample and draw some conclusions about how many people have had it and recovered, okay, that is going to create a much higher comfort level because those people – are not only immune from getting the disease, they can't spread it either. So somebody in that position can feel free to go to the restaurant. And um, I think we're gonna we're gonna see a lot of people like that. I think this if this disease is as contagious as they think it is, that tells us both that it's it's not as severe or virulent as we fear it might have been, and also that a lot of people have had it and recovered from it. And those people will be, will be free not only to participate in the economy, obviously, going to work, et cetera, but also, by the way, you know, to help their neighbors. Uh, and I'll just say Andy mentioned his mother. Uh, Brenda's mom, who's 89, lives with us. And so right now we got to be concerned when you know, our adult kids see her. But, but if we find out they've had the disease and recovered, you know, they can come and, um, and visit their grandma anytime they want. All right, our next question is from Eric in Battlefield. Eric, go ahead. Hey, guys, this is Eric Burleson. I'm state senator, and I just want to thank you for doing this. Um, what advice do you have for us in the legislature as we're going, ready to go back in? Um, are there, are there any, um, regulatory issues that you would uh, like to see us address? Um, in particular on the budget, any, any comments or concerns you guys have? Well, I, I uh, again, this is going to be an area of Jim's expertise, so I'm going to turn this over to him. I, I can tell you the one thing that always impressed me uh, from the Reagan administration not making a political endorsement was that uh, during the recovery, uh, uh, Art Laffer tells me that uh, people would say, what should we do? And, and uh and Ronald Reagan would say, go out and find something to undo. And I, I think that um, when we get through the crisis, the more the government doesn't do uh, will be uh, will be key rather than more of what it does do. Uh, during the crisis, though, you know, as a legislator, you're uh, you're in somewhat of a difficult position because uh, you 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 have influence, but you know, not enough power because you've got governors and executive officers. Kind of running the running the show, but I'd I'd listen for their lead and and uh, see what they think's best for your state. Uh, Jim, I mean, what do you what do you where are you on this? Yeah, I agree with that, Eric, and thank you, Senator, for for calling in and for your service. Um, well, I mean, some immediate issues. 
uh, your revenue projections are not going to be what you hoped they were three months ago, right? So I'm sure the Office of Administration is revising that, and that's going to affect the budget process. You know, this uh, this pandemic has uh, catalyzed the process of, of doing things online. Andy mentioned his his mom with Amazon, but I think we're seeing that with education now. And you've already made some moves in that direction, um, you know, people learning remotely. And I think you ought to explore, you know, wh what, has, what has worked with that? I mean, wh what, what has really been helpful with that and, and what hasn't and how you can encourage that in appropriate ways uh, going forward. And I would also, I, I think it would not be a bad idea to have maybe uh, a new committee or at least one of the existing committees uh, that really works with the governor uh, to to look at the capabilities of our public health infrastructure and plan for the future uh, to have um, stockpiles of things we're likely to need. I mean, most of these viruses attack the respiratory system at one phase or another, so we should not be short of ventilators the next time this happens. And while I'm not saying you ought to, you know, increase the surge capability, the ICUs by a factor of 10 or 20, because that would be pretty expensive. But you ought to have plans in place for being able to do that very quickly. And if that takes a little money, uh, I think you'll end up saving money, because this is not going to be the last pandemic that we have. And I'll just add one note. I've been optimistic before, but one of my big concerns coming out of this is that the radicals and the terrorists and the people around the world uh, who uh, who hate us have now seen how disruptive the pandemic is. And it is well within the capability of subnational groups to create man-made pathogens and to let them loose. And so it's all the more reason for us to be as prepared as possible, because if we're resilient enough, uh, then we have the answer when one of these things happens. Next up is Bertram and Ledoux. Bertram and Ledoux, go ahead. Jim, hi, Andy. Uh, first, Jim, I miss uh, on Donnybrook on Thursday having Brenda on. Uh, my question is relates to the last problem here was the 93 flood, which uh, flooded the entire Chesterfield Valley all the way up to the Highway 40 Daniel Boone Bridge and was closed for weeks. During that time, MoDOT, there were several miles from the river, to Highway 94 in St. Charles, MoDOT resurfaced the whole thing, uh, those several miles there. So we have a whole new part of a highway once the uh, uh, once the valley was open again. My question is: Are there things that businesses should be doing now to update, overhaul their systems, whatever, so they get a running, roaring start when the economy opens up at last? Thank you. Yeah, I, I think, um, as I mentioned earlier, I think the thing that people need to be uh, revving up for is the change in the way consumers are going to be purchasing goods and the way we're going to be living our lives. I mean, it, it, there, there is, you know, there was a big change in the country after 9-11. There's going to be a big change once this pandemic ends. Uh, I, I focused in my discussion on restaurants because restaurants uh, obviously take full advantage of these delivery services, which just a few years ago, the only delivery you could get, as I said, was pizza or Chinese. Now everybody can deliver. Uh, other industries need to adjust how their customer bases have changed during this process. So I think it's 
it, it, it's a good time to be going through your systems. It's a good time to look at how your website functions, whether you have or need an app, uh, what delivery services or other services you are utilizing or can become associated with. Can you do delivery yourself? Uh, can people order through your your uh, your app or your website as opposed to having to go to Amazon or going to one of these, if you're a restaurant company, going to one of the delivery services. People need to anticipate that things will be different and they need to be um, they need to be setting up their systems so that they can adjust to those changes. Andy, what about diversifying supply chains? I mean, you know, businesses have been, and we know the competition can be cutthroat, but it, do you think it's worth businesses um, investing a little bit to try and have diversified, you know, supply in the event of, a, of another disruption. And it could be a pandemic. It could be international conflict of some kind. We talked before about, you know, the competition between the United States and China and decoupling of those economies. How would you now, if you were a, a company with the resources to do it, think about supply chain management? Well, I certainly want to have a domestic alternative. And, and the problem is that so much has moved outside the United States that there aren't a lot of domestic alternatives. But even alternatives in Mexico and Canada uh, would be helpful because we've not got the uh, United States-Mexico-Canada agreement in place, which, um, which should make doing business in those countries easier. A lot of the supply chain has been moving out of China uh, into countries like Indonesia and Vietnam, uh, which which have some infrastructure. They don't have the great infrastructure that China has, uh, but they're building it up to try and move supply chain out. There was international conflict. Even even those markets would uh, would be a, a risky place to try and do business from. It might be more difficult than if you had something here in the North American continent. But any any way you can diversify supply chain uh, going forward will be a positive. We now know. I think we now know the dependence on China. Uh, it was to the extent that we are dependent on it was never a good idea, and in this uh, in this circumstances become a bad idea. Uh, but we, we we can still do business with China. You just need to you need to have alternatives if you can have them, if you can find them. All right, we have time for one more question. Uh, Bob in St. Charles, go ahead. Yes, I, w I heard an uh, economist the other night talking about, and I don't remember his name, about issuing debit cards that were earmarked specifically for certain areas, food, travel, gasoline, that this way instead of just handing out money to people, it would be earmarked for things they would have to use it on instead of just sticking it in the bank and saving it or paying off a loan, or uh, even though that's important. But have you heard anything about this? Yeah, they, they actually considered that when they were uh, working through the CARES Act legislation. That was something that Treasury discussed. Uh, it turned out it was too complicated for the government to yeah. do it. And I think there was a reluctance on the part of the government to be directing people to how to spend these monies. You know, people probably know um, uh, what they need better than the government knows what they need. So I think there might have been a, some political resistance to it or, or philosophical resistance. But I think the bigger problem was the government just couldn't get it together to do it fast enough. Yeah. I would not have been hopeful about the prospect of getting that done in the time frame that they need to act. Well, Zach, I guess that Bye. wraps up our town hall. Um, I want to thank Senator Talon and Mr. Posner for joining us today. Uh, 
we have an answer to Senator Burleson's question about what the Missouri General Assembly can do, and you can learn about those answers at showmeinstitute.org. You can listen to our podcast at SoundCloud backslash showmeinstitute. Please send us your email if you're interested in receiving invitations to future events. And, Zach, you have a way that people can leave questions if they weren't answered today, right? Yeah, so if we didn't get to your question today, you can either stay on the line after this call and you'll be able to leave a voice message that'll get to us. You can email us at info at showmeinstitute.org uh, or you can send us questions on Twitter. Our profile is at showme and you can also find us at Facebook slash showmeinstitute. I want to thank you all for joining us and thank you again, Senator Talent and Mr. Posner. Stay safe and take care. Bye.